Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Front Street Shipyard, a Midcoast, Maine boat building, repair, and storage facility located in Belfast. Front Street Shipyard on Penobscot Bay, offering dockage, service, and amenities for owners, captains, and crew. Online at frontstreetshipyard.com or 930-3740. Support for WERU also comes from Bruce Parley Incorporated, specializing in custom-built staircases and also fine-finished carpentry on yachts, trolleys, etc. since 1998, in Trenton at 479-4269 or brparley at gmail.com. The time's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Boat Talk with your hosts Alan Sprague and Mike Joyce is up next. Good morning, good morning. It's the uh, second Tuesday of the month, 10 o'clock. Time for Boat Talk here on Community Radio, WERU-FM, Blue Hill, 89.9, 99.9 in Bangor. And all around the world, this windblown world at WERU.org. Boat Talk is a call-in show for people contemplating things naval. The number to call in is 1-866-625-9378. I'm Alan Sprague, and I'm here with the uh, rusty lost anchor back from a uh, delivery trip last month, Mike Joyce. Welcome back, Mike. Yeah, um, needless to say, uh, expected to be here last month. Uh, Things don't always go as planned, and... Uh, yeah, so we should anyway. probably uh, start right out by saying we're going to dedicate this show to our friend Andy Horner. Yeah, my friend uh, Captain Andy Horner uh, uh, ended up going on his uh, last boat delivery with him uh, last month, and uh, Andy was diagnosed with uh, bone marrow cancer and uh, did not survive that diagnosis uh, more than a few weeks. Yeah, a strong uh, one. Went down fast and hard. Andy was the... Uh, Sold most of uh, Tom Morris's boats for years. Morris Yachts was very responsible for the success of uh, uh, Morris Yachts. Yeah, I worked with Andy even before that one. uh, Andy used to do boat deliveries for the Bass Harbor Marine boat show down in Newport when they uh, had uh, usual shows in the water, boats in the water down there. And I helped him with a delivery coming back from Newport many years ago in in the fall about this time of the year. Um, and it was just about dusk, and all of a sudden I could hear Andy shout, whoa, whoa, and he's jumping in, and I ran up to see what he said. A boat just exploded, and so it looked like off in the distance you could see this sort of spray mist in the air, so we headed right over there, and as we got closer, we could see that it was uh, uh, 
what's the word when whales fly out of the water breaching broach, yeah broaching yeah all right because i never heard the one about the boat exploded yeah so. no that's what he said this is first impression they thought he saw a boat explode in the water when Fortunately, it wasn't a boat, but it was a pretty impressive sight to see those things flying out of the water like that. I saw a great photo of uh, Andy when he was uh, in his young prime in the in the in the 70s there, uh, driving boats back and forth across the Gulf of Maine uh, all the time, and um, young wild man who came up here, left North Carolina, get away from some of his demons, and. Uh, um, started uh, working in the boat industry here and started doing boat deliveries and he started uh, keeping track and and about 200 uh, crossings of the Gulf of Maine a year or two later so just stopped counting mm-hmm. and again I've been sailing with him um, at least 25 of my uh, 30 years or so out to sea and and nobody more uh, instrumental and nobody better at it and uh, certainly taught me and um, what we learn is you can't uh, fix some of the big things, but you can do the little things, you know. And people make all the difference, Alan. Yeah. You know, people make all the difference. They really do. Yeah, and, we've uh, had some good captains and some bad captains, and uh, Andy was definitely a good one. Yep. Um, so anyway, Andy Horner this morning, um, yep, uh, like I say, uh, pretty hard, uh, again, pretty hard to watch, but uh, it's all about life. It is... Yep. Even especially watching people die is about life. Yeah, right. You know? Enjoy it while you can. Is one thing that I learned. And, uh, well, as the song goes, uh, you know, uh, uh, life is going by. I hear it ticking while we're talking. Yep. Uh, You've got to grab it and uh, live each and every day. Right. You know? The other song says there is no hearse with a luggage rack. There you go. Yeah. Yep. So, anyway, Andy Horner this morning, that's a story on that one. And,. That's where I was last month. We had to uh, turn around going up the Delaware Bay, go back to Cape May, and I flew him back to the hospital in Bar Harbor, and then they took him to Bangor, and then they took him home to die. Mm-hmm. It didn't take too long, so. Yeah. So, on to a hopefully more pleasant things. I'm not sure if uh, Hurricane Irma is going to be that much more pleasant. Oh, good Lord. We yeah. can talk about uh, weather a little bit uh, on the Boat Talk program here. No problem at all. We, um, what's, uh, what are we doing this morning anyway? We, uh, we're hoping to have a couple of different guests, none of whom seem to be available this morning. Right, yeah. I'm yeah. not too worried about that. I hope you're not either. And, no. And uh, the reason I'm not worried, I think we have some friends on the other side of this microphone here. <laughs> There's a lot to talk about. one 625 We'll figure something else. But we have um, tried to make an ongoing discussion of... Climate change. Let's call it climate change, global warming. You uh, label it any way you want. Of uh, you know, trying to um, keep that thread kind of going through uh, uh, boat talk. Um, just in terms of, of especially Harvey, but uh, let alone Irma, as I like to say, um, it's good to be boat people. The world is mostly water, and there's more coming. Oh yeah, you know, and. Uh, the uh, fact that uh, a lot of this stuff just goes out to sea is not, uh, you know, out, out of trouble, out of mind. The world is mostly water. And the thermohaline pump, the uh, uh, temperature salt pump that drives the ocean currents, drives the weather mm-hmm. on this planet. And you've got things like the um, uh, 52 inches of rain and a storm. I think somebody recorded 26 inches of rain in a day. That's just insane. That's off 52, the yeah, that's in, off in the Texas. Chart. Yeah. 
Yeah. And talking to my friend, Captain Sonny Perkins, Sonny uh, spent uh, well, a good 15 years down uh, driving oil supply uh, tugs around the uh, Gulf of Mexico there for Exxon. And 87-degree uh, water is absolutely unprecedented, mm-hmm. you know. Never saw that. And uh, all that warm water's got to go somewhere, and physics of it say that, um, you know. The warmer it gets, the faster it goes. The wow. The bigger it gets. And um, new normal, uh, you know, is is uh, the question, um, the graph on, uh, on natural disasters uh, and their expense is going up pretty steadily. You know, we just had uh, two of the most expensive uh, uh, natural disasters in American history within a week or so of each other here. The record uh, before that was uh, $145 billion was the uh, toll in in 2004, the most expensive uh, natural disaster year in history. Um, But, again, we've just had two that are going to be around $200 billion each. Well, you talk about money. Here is a uh, a, uh, from the... uh Bloomberg View, fairly responsible press outfit. Uh, they say the National Flood Insurance Program needs attention. Its premiums should be raised to better reflect the individual property's potential for flooding, with subsidized premiums for most vulnerable properties phased out altogether. Change is long overdue. The National Flood Insurance Program is already $25 billion in debt before Hurricane Harvey hit. Years ago, I looked at buying a piece of waterfront that was a bit of a bluff, and the uh, thing come with uh, th- you had to have some flood insurance on that, which I found to be an onerous kind of little expense for me. It was never going to flood up there, you know what I'm saying? But So I understand, but, man, um, again, things is changing. That is uh, even people that, that argue this, that, all the little uh, fussy points uh, would ar- would not argue that things are changing. They would argue that things change all the time and that it could be natural. And, uh, you know, um, the science is unsettled is another wonderful argument. It really is. It's better than saying, no, I don't believe that, okay? It's like, well, unsettled, yes. There's so much doubt in there, okay? Mm -hmm. For instance, on Boat Talk this morning, we got no guests. Let's... let's, um, Let's debate the earth is round and the earth is flat. Let's <laughs> let's debate the two sides of that. Is too. Yeah. No, it isn't. Yeah, right. And again, it's not really a, a uh, intelligent, fair debate with a. Uh, but it's all about power and liability. Is when you come right down to it, and one of the reasons we uh, started talking about this a few months back was a uh, remarkable book I read. Uh, I'm sorry, I can't think of the the uh, name of it, but Amita Amitash Gosh. Amitav Ghosh, he's Indian, uh, from India. Uh-huh. And again, he uh, pointed out that the politics of the thing will trump, uh, bad pun, will will trump uh, science in so many ways. Politics and money will trump those decisions. So given that that seems to be what's happening, what is the outcome that, that might be foreseeable? And he calls it the paradigm of the armed lifeboat versus the... Uh, politics of attrition of the others who aren't in the armed lifeboat hmm. and as we like to point out as boat people lifeboat's never good an armed lifeboat is uh, you know why would you uh, uh again uh, aspire to be in one uh, of course they're denying there will be no such thing to start off with yeah it's uh, there's no good answer but there's a lot to contemplate there that's for sure our friend charlie pew from last hour is here now Welcome to uh, Boat Talk, Charlie. Sit right down and uh, 
Oh, thanks, Alan. I seat. just happened to hear you talking about uh, evading uh, hurricanes, and I got a few stories over the years. Uh, one of them has to do with I was in the Navy down in uh, Mayport, Florida. I was a navigator on a tanker for quite a few years, and we used to get a lot of storms and hurricanes. This is a, a Navy tanker? Navy tanker, Oh, right, I got right. some navigation questions for you, but go ahead. Okay, yeah, we can get into that. Yeah. <laughs> but... Uh, Anyway, we had a lot of hurricanes come up through there, and it was common for the Mayport Naval Station to empty out every time one came along. The Navy had as a policy, you had to get underway. You didn't want to end up with your ship sitting up on the pier after a hurricane. Mm-hmm. That was not a good, not good form. And so we went out after one of them came up, coming up right north of the Bahamas. And we thought, well, this will be an easy, easy sail because we'll go out and we run down the Strait of Florida and let the thing pass north of us, and then we'll follow it back up and come back in. We'll only be out for a few days, no big deal. Well, this hurricane didn't uh, do what we expected, and uh, we went down in the Straits of Florida. The hurricane came up there and stalled out right off Jacksonville and then started moving south again. And it came right down through the Strait of Florida, chased us around the end of Cuba, and we ended up having to go through what's known as Crooked Island Passage, which for those of you who are in the Merchant Marine or have had Navy experience in that area know is a very tortuous uh, channel between uh, islands. It's uh, so close that you can uh, literally pitch a rock off the bridge mm. onto a sandbar. We were drawing 34 feet at the time. In windy conditions. In windy conditions. I want, yeah. I want deep blue water. I don't want a shallow uh, Gulf of Mexico with, uh, you know, torturous passages at all. Uh, that was yeah. fun, especially yeah. at night, being the navigator and being responsible but, for yeah. the ship and everything else. Uh, but uh, Back in the days where you weren't guaranteed to be within two inches of where the machine says yeah. you were either. Uh, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, We didn't have fake, G- fake GPS then either. Uh, we didn't have GPS at all. It was interesting because as, as navigator on there, of course, as you know, the Navy always required that you uh, do it by hand. Uh, but we had the early days of well, Iran Sea um, when I was on. Uh, I hate to break in, but yeah, we, ha- we have a phone call, so we, sure. we try to give those. Oh, the phone call left. All right, so go ahead. Sorry. But. Well, I don't want to ramble on the stories, but I remember that was the days when Loran was just being developed, and it was Loran C, and we were using it. That's where you mainly lined up the waves, the sine curves, and put them together and came up with a position. Yeah. And it was only good for about 200 miles offshore, I guess, something like that. And we, as I say, we weren't allowed to use it as a primary navigation tool, but uh, we had to had to take all sights. And of course, on Crooked Island Passage, you had to do it. It was totally visual all the way. A lot of cross bearings, taking uh, cross bearings. A lot on of everything, cross yeah. bearings. Yeah. 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 Yes. Charlie, got to ask you. I'm sitting here with uh, the Bangor Daily News from uh, August uh, 21st here, Monday, and uh, it's a story about Trump's uh, advisory panel on climate change. But uh, right next to it, on the same page, is U.S. warship. Uh, and merchant vessel collide off of Singapore. You know, uh, that second time that's happened just recently. Uh, McCain. You know, any uh, any thoughts on that as a yeah, naval I, navigator? Yeah, I was very interested in that story. Uh, when I was uh, on the bridge all the time, uh, we used to see merchant ships come by, and uh, we were convinced there was nobody in the pilot house. We were yeah. pretty much, <laughs> we figured they were on, on what we called Iron Mike, that's the uh, autopilot. Yeah. And uh, they would just plow right through the formations, and everybody else had to scatter because you couldn't raise them on the radio, you couldn't raise them on flashing light, you couldn't do anything. They just were coming on. Uh, 
But speaking of collisions, the collisions that were reported in the paper here recently were collisions uh, at sea without any particular maneuvering going on. I was actually on board in a collision uh, between a tanker and an aircraft carrier. Oh, dear. <laughs> one time. We were on and the tanker now, were we? Right. Right. We were on the tanker. Yeah. It was one of those things where uh, we were assigned to refuel the carrier Intrepid that had just been in uh, Charleston for a refit and uh, was coming back out for sea trials before going to Vietnam. And I was a navigator, and there were two of us that were qualified for officer of the deck while we were doing underway replenishment. I was one of them, and the communications officer was the other. Because I had been up all night, and we rendezvoused at 4 a.m. to try to load the tanker up, it took all day, uh, he said, well, why don't you go ahead and get some sleep, and... Uh, I'll uh, take the bridge, and, and uh, you can come up when you get a chance. So I did that, and when I came up about 7 o'clock in the morning, I noticed that the ships were really quite far apart. We were alongside the carrier. We had all the hoses hooked up and everything, but we were quite far apart. Started up the ladder to the bridge, and I noticed looking right through the pilot house out the front ports, you could see nothing but carrier up there. And here we were steaming along at 12 knots, and which is a standard refueling speed. There was a lot of chaos on the bridge, a lot of people yelling and screaming. We were stuck hard left rudder. The carrier was on our port side, and she had right rudder, and she was putting the power to, to the engines to try to get out of the way before we, mm-hmm. we crashed into her. I thought one of my nine lives was going that day, and I turned around and grabbed a life jacket and went back on the deck up behind the bridge. About that time, the bow hit the carrier because she couldn't get far enough ahead of us, so we hit right near her aft fueling station and drove into her about 25, 30 feet. Mm. And uh, I was, we were carrying the jet fuel, aviation gasoline, uh, black oil, and things like that. And uh, All right there, I, was, I was pretty sure we were going to have a big explosion. The JP-5 tank was right up forward of the bridge. The av gas was up there. And I was just waiting for the explosion. I knew it was going to go. And I couldn't decide whether you wanted to be in the water or not in the water because (laughs) if you had burning fuel on the water, that wouldn't be so good if you were in the water with it. Uh, On the other hand, you could be blown to some other rains if something happened. In any case, uh, it didn't explode. I didn't jump. Uh, I was back on the back part of the bridge and uh, we were just sitting there waiting for something to happen. Um, were the two we, the two boats were stuck together then? With your we boat? we were stuck into the side of a of a carrier, pretty much like a javelin would be if you yeah. threw it into yeah. a target. And uh, we finally backed out slowly, and everything settled down, and everything was calm, and nothing was exploding, and everybody felt a little bit better. But we were the, our ship was destroyed all the way back to behind the forward gun mounts, and the carrier had a big hole in the side of it. Above the waterline. Above the waterline, yeah, it wasn't Good. below, right. Yeah. So, that, yeah, that was a, a story I'm sure you'll never forget. <laughs> and, and people uh, visualize these things like, so like a car accident, a thing of a car accident um, where you are driving on a straight path uh, or one where you're in a skid, okay? A boat that's trying to emergency maneuver like those two are, they're, they're basically both skidding. Well, you said the left the rudder was stuck? Yeah, what was finally determined, uh, fortunately, I wasn't involved in anything because I was off duty at the time getting ready to go on, and I don't think I would have been able to do anything different. But 
the uh, officer of the deck, uh, they had a, a hearing about it, of course. They yeah. always do, the captain, the officer of the deck. It was determined that the uh, steering mechanism, the, the uh, aft steering, emergency steering gears, which are all mechanically operated, you have to insert a pin in the quadrant back there to, to manually take over from the hydraulic system. That sounds handy. Apparently that didn't work very well, and they couldn't get the pin in back there, so they were trying to get it in, so we were basically stuck in the hard left rudder. Mm. When you're refueling with another ship alongside, you do it at 12 knots in order to maintain control. The carrier always goes to the port of the tanker, and it always is the one that maintains station on the tanker. The tanker is the guiding ship, and everybody on both sides maintains station. In order to maintain station because of the... Bernoulli effect, I believe it is, where water passes between the ships and it speeds Again, up. Again, it's it gets fluid dynamics. It ain't yeah. a linear thing at all. That's yeah. right. It's not. But it gets close to the end, and it sucks the stern together. Right. And so what you got to do is the tanker's got to have a little bit of left rudder on all the time, and the carrier, if she's to port, always has to have a little bit of right rudder on to keep everything straight. Hmm. And well, if you slow down, the steering gets mushy, and you got to keep going. Exactly. you got to have some speed to maintain control, as you Exa- said. Exactly so, you know, right. Uh, with a floating bomb right next to you, passing gas. Uh, that's right. <laughs> Great. <laughs> we, would keep it, but we would steer like that, you know, alongside ships for 12, 14 hours, because it took that long to refuel the carrier. And meanwhile, we'd take all our escorts to port to starboard. And we could refuel all the DDGs and DLGs and other ships that go along with the carrier while we were refueling the carrier on port side. Mm-hmm. So you, that's a long time to be a, moving within very close proximity to very large vessels. Yeah. yeah. I was sure. in the Navy overnight. I took a, uh overnight cruise on the USS Wasp as a guest of the uh, executive officer. And got to spend some quality time on the bridge, and, and every part of that that ship, uh, amphibious assault carrier, um, was very impressed by the Navy and and how they behave and and act, and let alone design everything. You know, uh, very well thought out, I thought. Oh, yeah. But I'm standing there on the bridge, Charlie, and and they're uh, refueling the uh, uh, Harrier jets out on on the deck there in front of us, and I'm standing there, the captain and the XO, is all these competent people around me, and. This hose in the top of this Harrier jet is now overflowing, and there's what I think is gasoline running all down the jet and down the deck, and I'm standing there going, you know, and nobody seems very concerned, and finally I had to say, is this right? And that's water, okay? They have a tank in the Harrier that has a water tank that makes a mist that helps it to hover. That's not gas. That's water coming out of there, and and they are very competent, so I found I found them to be very competent. I was very impressed by the um, uh, the boys in the Navy when I was there. I also yeah. have a little thing about the Coast Guard, though. I run into a lot of them, and I chat them all up, you know. Yeah. Where are you from? How'd you, why'd you choose to uh, join the Coasties, you know? Why didn't you, yeah. why didn't you decide to be a Marine, you know, and uh, stuff like that. And the uh, amount of them who are from uh, Arizona and never seen the ocean and, you know, is, is surprising. Very interesting. I, I think the military services do a great job of training people. I always thought the navigator's job in the Navy was absolutely the best job you could have. You were on the bridge all the time. You didn't stand a regular watch schedule. You did all of the complicated maneuvers. You knew where you were all the time. The captain asked you for all the position information go. and everything. It's the best job in the Navy. And ultimately, it's the captain's fault. So, Well, uh, that's the tough part of it. Interest, <laughs> but not, you know, uh, responsibility, but not, uh, again, the ultimate, uh, yeah. That's right. Yep. That's right. Not a bad thing at all. 
You know, talking about the Coast Guard uh, is another story. I had an opportunity to spend 10 days on the Coast Guard Bark Eagle back in 1976. Square Rigger. Yeah, Square Rigger. That we took from the Germans after World War II. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. But that that was now quite a thrill. And I I was doing that because I was interested in training, sail training, and uh, was trying to get on board the race that they ran from Plymouth, England, to Newport, uh, to New York City, on the anniversary of the bicentennial of the uh, U.S. Uh, establishment of the United States. Hmm. And um, I couldn't get on because the Sail Training Association rules said that you had to be a cadet uh, enrolled in a current academy before you could be a uh, crew member. So I gave it up, and the next thing you know, about four months later, I got a letter from the Commandant of the Coast Guard Academy saying that he heard that I was interested in doing this and wanted to know if uh, I would be wanting, still wanting to do it if, I, if they offered me a position from Charleston, South Carolina, north to Newport, Rhode Island, for 10 days at the expense of the, of the Coast Guard. The only thing I had to do was sign a waiver saying that uh, I would, neither I nor my heirs would sue anybody if I got <laughs> killed and uh, pay my own transportation down to Charleston and back home from Newport. And needless to say, I didn't waste very long trying to sign up for that. And it was an absolutely wonderful experience, and nobody could figure out how, why I was on board. There were five guests outside the Coast Guard on that particular trip. And I was the only one who didn't really have a claim to fame. I mean, one was on the uh, Congressional Budget Committee funding right. the Coast Guard. Yeah, one yeah, was yeah. Commandant of the Fisk Coast Guard District. No, you got to know some people. One, yeah. one was the guy who just finished carving a new gold-leafed uh, eagle figurehead for the ship, and part of his deal was that he got to go on the ship. Huh. And there was somebody writing a history of the eagle on board, and me. And everybody thought I was the token civilian, and uh, but I, I took it and had a great time with it. It's, uh, I think, being a sailor in the uh, modern yacht age, knowing where you are all the time, and um, just, for instance, went through uh, New York City in the middle of the night, and we've got AIS on, on the uh, navigating machine, so not only... Um, can I see these ships around me? I know their names and can call them on the radio. Right. You know? Yeah. And talk right to them. And uh, very professionally, uh, you know, everybody's very professional. And, and we commu- communication is the is the key. And as you say, uh, there are times when you call a merchant ship and it never calls you back. And you say to yourself, well, there's nobody there. Or they don't speak English. Or they're, you know, uh, busy doing something else. Um, you know. Yeah. Like and, sleeping? <laughs> well, and again, that's not uh, flying an American flag, and it's not, uh, you know, there's there's uh, not American seamen on the bridge there, so in general, and um, yeah. Well, the communication was actually a lot of fun for me. Uh, I learned flashing light because I always enjoyed the mid-watch and I enjoyed the morning watch. I liked the quiet of night, and I liked the dawn breaking in the in the early morning over the ocean. I thought that was just absolutely you ever seen spectacular. The, the green flash? I have not. Uh, I've looked for it many times, yeah. but uh, I have not. But always try to get the dawn watch. That's yeah. that's my... Uh, oh, it's great. I always yeah. consider that to be a good day, yeah. Oh, absolutely beautiful, absolutely beautiful. We had one, one time I was on the morning watch like that. The sun was just coming up over the horizon and everybody else was asleep. And all of a sudden, right beside the bridge, here comes this huge crash out of the water, just roar coming up. 
And on top of that thing was a flashing yellow light, you know, wow, 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 wow. And it turned out to be a submarine that was surfacing, and the captain of the submarine knew the captain of our ship, and he thought he would give him a little, a little early surprise. morning jolly. Yeah, uh, uh, coming <laughs> doing an emergency uh, mm. surface situation where he comes up about half the ship comes up at a 45 degree angle out yeah, of the water. Yeah before it finally settles down in the water, and then you've got these flashing <laughs> lights going on. Yeah. Submariners aren't natural uh, people anyway, and, and uh, you know, so many ways, I would say. I, I've seen a, a, a few uh, outside-the-box performances by military, uh, in both the Navy and the Air Force, and sometimes you'll see pilots doing things that probably they weren't directed to do, but, you know, when they screech over your boat at, 50 feet above the water. <laughs> Got a lot of good gear and time to kill, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, Charlie, how long did you spend in the Navy? Three years yeah. on active duty, and yeah. I was in Florida the whole time. Yeah. Had a lot of stories to tell. We we saw a water spout one of them. I had never seen a water spout. I haven't seen it uh, in private boating before. I've done a lot of boat deliveries uh, here to Florida offshore and things mm. like that, but uh, water spouts are scary things, and they never know what they're going to do. It's basically, as you know, it's a tornado on the water, yeah. and uh, and they move around, and and uh, we tried running away from it. Fortunately, we were able to do it, but uh, it was a pretty scary proposition. Just in St. Michael's, Maryland, and a uh, lady uh, boat on the other side of the dock, her, uh, was a little scratched up, and her canvas was ripped. Uh, night before that, she was in another marina that had a tornado next to it. Wow. And it sucked the windows out of a bunch of boats. It took her dinghy ashore, took it out of the water and took it ashore, and the club swimming pool had, she says, like eight to ten dinghies in it all strewn, uh, you know. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, quite a mess. And and like I say, a tornado in a marina is nothing that I... I know a lot of boat stuff, okay? I'm not... Oh, nothing there. Have you seen any pictures of uh, Hurricane Irma and what she's done to some of the marinas down in the oh, Caribbean? Oh, good Lord. And, oh, and, it's uh, terrible. I loved uh, watching people preparing for it, uh, particularly in the Miami area. We showed a bunch of uh, sailboats uh, going and finding mangrove uh, um, swamps and pushing, pushing into them, basically, mm -hmm. tying off to the mangroves. The idea being that they're a, uh, a bumper, an absorber. Yeah. Okay? But... Uh, two of my favorites, we had uh, one lady who was busy snugging her uh, beautiful blue canvas sail cover, some umbrella sail cover, onto the, uh, on the mainsail on her boom, okay? And she's got her jib wrapped around uh, the furler up front, uh -huh. and she's snugging the cover. That cover doesn't have a chance in anything over uh, maybe 20, <laughs> 20, 30 knots or 40 knots at all. Uh, the sail should not be on the boat, let alone the mast, if yeah. they could get it off of there. There was another lady who was on a multi-hull, and she says, we have ballast tanks, and we're going to fill them. And just sit here happy as ducks. And then she stared at the camera for a minute and went, I hope. I hope, yeah. Didn't hear about her. <clears throat> but saw a couple boat wrecks on the uh, TV news, you know, uh, channels are really strewn with them now. And and navigation is, is going to remain difficult because of not only... Uh, lots of stray boats in the water, but all the crap that's in the water. Yeah. Seeing all those boats up on the dock like that uh, tells you about the wisdom of the Navy's uh, po policy that uh, you had to get underway. Yep. They yep. didn't want ships sitting up there like that, and you would be if you were in a bad situation. Mm -hmm. And the boat should, in uh, clear, deep water, should be able to bob like a cork, according to theory. It doesn't what always work, but more times than it 
might not end up in the, in the club swimming pool instead, you know. I'll tell you another story. Back in 1986, I guess, 88, something like that, I was with a friend of mine who had an Alden 47, and we were taking it down to Florida from here. And we knew there was a storm coming through, and it came across uh, up here. It actually sunk, what was it, the Louis R. French that went down off Brooklyn, and, and the passengers had just wade and swim to shore and there was some of them were that, missed that one thank you uh, yeah that, that was a long time ago but it was that same front came through and we knew it was coming you could look off to your we were heading south of course at the time and we could look off the port starboard quarter and you could see the line back there coming the squall line we had one of north, north sales uh, early internal main systems furling systems we had it down to about a handkerchief size anyway that was about all we had we started going, and this front came through, and the swells completely changed 180 degrees. Immediately, the wind changed 180 degrees, picked up to about 45 or 50 knots. There was green water coming over the rail back there. I was on the helm. The owner of the boat was on the radar down below trying to pick up some buoys. We were about 200 miles off the Delmarva coast. And uh, we couldn't shift positions. We couldn't change. But it was so rough, there was green water coming over the deck. We were afraid to change, even though I was in harness, he was in harness. We were all fastened in. Finally got down to the entrance of Chesapeake Bay and turned and went up the ch ship channel. And, of course, you know, normally sailboats have priority right away. But uh, when ships in a channel like that, they can't maneuver, so mm -hmm. they really have the right of way. We were constantly having to swing outside buoys and let these big ships pass as they were all trying to come in as fast as they could to get out of the storm, falling in behind the ships. I ended up on the helm that time for 24 hours straight, never was able to switch off. He was down below 24 hours. We finally got into the waterside, which is a retail complex there in Norfolk on the Elizabeth River, and they had some guest docks there, and we pulled into the docks there and collapsed and stayed about 24 hours just sleeping catching up with it yeah. we get a, a good buzz off that 24-hour watch like uh <laughs> i uh, one time uh kept seeing people come down the side deck and i turned my head and they wouldn't be there but you know uh, i wasn't hallucinating but yeah. <laughs> but you could i guess it gets weird it can get yeah, weird it is gets what tired. I'm saying. Yeah. that thing sunk a tugboat down there in this southern chesapeake too at the same same storm man and uh try to imagine as a seaman 185 knot winds Oh, gee, I can't. You can't stand up, uh, you know, past no. about 80 or 90, strictly speaking. Uh, very difficult to even stand up, let alone think and operate. Have and you ever seen any of those films that the maritime museums have about going around the horn? Oh, yeah. yeah. And the square riggers. And yeah. Boy, you, I just can't imagine being out on those yard arms. And like I say, great uh, uh, error to be a, a seaman because you always know where you are, and it's pretty good duty with uh, nice uh, cushy foam mattresses and, and you know. Right. Uh, yeah, not bad duty nowadays compared to to the old days. So, no. um, well, I got to go around the horn one time, so I know what it's like down there. But I never did it on a square rigger, and I can't imagine doing it. I didn't even have the guts when I was on the Eagle to go all the way out on the yard arms. I'd go to the second platform, which was 110 feet high, and that's like being outside on a 10-story building and uh, moving around on the business end of a buggy whip, standing on it one rope. Basically, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Everything let's, moves. let's not uh, forget uh, who those boys were who did that work. They weren't the highest on the social order. They weren't uh, 
they were while they were out on the yard doing that, but that's everywhere right. else they weren't. And, yeah, that's uh, right. You know, Lose one overboard, it's no big deal. Well, I'm just saying, uh, you know, it's, uh, it was a hard job and, and a rough bunch of boys that did that. Yeah. Um, Often and, they were just picking up pieces of sail, too. They were trying to gather it up and just get it on a, on a boat rope, you know, to hold it still because it was just flailing. Mm-hmm. Yep, and again, uh, we have all the conveniences nowadays, but it has not made things uh, idiot-proof at all, and I'm glad that a lot of people are still intimidated by the water and their boats, um, let alone the machines on them, and and, uh, there's a lot of people that should be nervous about being out on the water, and and in some ways it gets uh, too easy nowadays. Well, it certainly is something you got to respect. I, I learned that over the years. You cannot take the ocean for granted as beautiful as it is, particularly early in the morning and everything calm, it can uh, turn on you in a second. And as we like to say, it's a learning experience. You have to learn and earn that. And if you're not still learning, uh, you're probably not paying attention and looking at it right. And uh, the joy you can take in learning uh, is a beautiful thing if you, again, look at it right. So, That's right. Um, hey, we are doing boat talk this morning. It's uh, Technically speaking, a call-in show, you know. one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. We are talking incessantly, but we will stop for a phone call. Well, we had a couple other people in mind, and it didn't work out. And uh, we were talking about the uh, climate change thing for a few minutes there. Warren Buffett, for instance, points out that uh, climate change is uh, way more expensive than terrorism. When you want to look at it, you know, uh, in practical terms. Yeah. Um, look at um, flooding. You know, and again, we... Uh, um, fool ourselves at our own peril. The Pew uh, uh, Center put out a survey last Tuesday on the politics of climate change, and one of their findings is that three quarters of Americans doubt the consensus, the scientific consensus on climate change. Three quarters. Three quarters doubt the consensus. Like, oh, it's not settled science. There's probably something going. On. I suspect could be something going on, but. Wow. And the frogs are literally being boiled, and there's people uh, standing in and outside the water, basically in the water with them, going, no. Man. I wonder if they should retake that uh, um, survey that Pew, the Pew Center did after these storms. There may be some minds that have been changed. They've spent a, uh, uh, a remarkable amount of time um, propagandizing the subject, mm. and it's worked. For it instance, a uh, book I was just reading the other day points out the... Uh, these are. This is just a handful of of the Coke sponsored organizations that influence the climate change uh, uh, discussion and includes the Club for Growth, the American Legislative uh, Legislative uh, Exchange Council, State Policy Network, Cato Institute, the Independent Institute. That's a good one. What's that mean? You know. <laughs> Um, the Mackinac Center, the Mercatus Center, the Liberty Fund, the Center for the Study of Political Choice. Um, and these are the people that accuse scientists of being on the take for money, being paid by the uh, you know people who don't want their economic um, liabilities and freedoms challenged and, and want the Funny how train to, money you know. works into it any which way, doesn't it? Well, and again, the uh, paradigm ends up with a predictable outcome if you don't pay attention to what's happening over, over um, you know profit and go play to Latinum, as the uh, Ferengis would say on Star Trek, uh, you end up. Uh, in your best case scenario, in an armed lifeboat trying to protect yourself from everybody else who can't. And uh, best of luck when that all falls apart. The um, 
Trump administration just uh, two weeks ago disbanded the advisory panel on climate change, and this was a, uh, a group that included 15 people in um, science and uh, corporation uh, people as well that expired a couple of Sundays ago. Their job is supposed to be uh, issue a report every four years, and this has only come out three times since 1990. It is uh, supposed to uh, uh, be... Material for analysis of ongoing policy. Administration officials are reviewing a scientific report that is key to in the final document, known as the Client Science Special Report. It was produced by scientists from 18 different federal agencies and estimates that human activities, anthropogenic, were responsible for an increase in the global temperatures of between 1.1 to 1.3 degrees from uh, 1951 to now, you know. And again, the Gulf of Mexico is 87 degrees, and all that warm water has gone up in the air and got to fall back down on everybody else. And and again, you can um, uh, the Earth is not round all you want, <laughs> but the fact is that you're not going to fall off the edge, and you, and you've got to pay attention to facts at your own peril. Yeah. Over uh, again, uh, vested interest. Let's put it that way. Okay. Um. This is boat talk, so let's get back to some boat-oriented uh, things here. Uh, Charlie, you're probably particularly interested in this. When you were a navigator, were, were you using GPS? No. Uh, that was before. Uh, it was before. You missed your Look, look at how old this fellow is. Come that's on. That's right. I'll tell you how old I am. They didn't have calculators back in yeah. the day. That's right. That's right. Have you heard, no, of, have you heard of GPS spoofing? I heard about it this morning, which is one of the things that interested me about this show. I yeah. was interested in how you were going to talk about that. Uh, apparently, the Russians, some Russian people have figured out how to uh, confuse a GPS signal that's coming into a certain area. Uh, last June 22nd, the master of a ship off the Russian port of, uh, I won't say the name, some Russian N.O. Norvisk kind of name, uh, discovered his GPS was putting him in the wrong spot. He was more than 32 kilometers inland near the <laughs> Gladinsk airport. <laughs> After checking his navigation equipment and it was working properly, the captain contacted other nearby ships and their AIS traces. You, do, do you have AIS then? We didn't have no, that then either. Yeah. AIS is something that reads GPS and tells where a boat is. Their AIS trace signals show that they were also near the same airport, 32 kilometers inland. At least 20 ships were affected. Well, my so. guess is that the Navy operates with this uh, the same way they used to operate before when mechanical equipment like Loran was unreliable, and that is you were required to do it by hand. You were required to use a sextant. You were mm -hmm. required to use the navigation tables, uh -huh. and you were doing all the calculations by hand. And their argument was the machinery might not work. Right. And so you, you know you, if you can do it by hand, they can't mess with that. Right, yes. And I think today, I don't know what the policies are today, but I would be surprised if it isn't very similar to that now. That you, because you can cause some serious problems by messing with GPS system. Well, that's what the problem is that they're talking about shipping. You know, commercial shipping is having a very difficult time navigating because they put, rely on GPS almost exclusively now. Sure. And uh, also, this this article is interesting. The article is from um, New Scientist. 
they also note that uh, this this um, hacking has probably been sponsored by. Uh, they're they're guessing the Russian government because GPS is also used to guide bombs, missiles, and drones. So they're looking for a, sort of a de- defensive aspect. Oh well, it does have a practical aspect. Uh, I yeah. could make it miss me because otherwise it just seems kind of cruel. They We're going to mess with it because we theory, can. They could have it turn around and go to some place where it would, people didn't want it to go. And it's not like the um, they were playing. Some of you didn't. Uh, maybe it was Vern played some Stan Rogers this morning, okay? And, and we, both, uh, we both did play a little Yeah, okay, and, and great songs about the wreckers. Uh, the old uh, put up a false light, drive the uh, ship ashore under your cliff, and then uh, right. strip it of everything it's got. Well, <laughs> that's what it's right. all about. That's right. not a good reason to spoof GPS. So, you know, there's no, True. I want the practical aspects of this without just being mean and, and messing with, again, stuff because we can uh, uh, make bad things happen to just kind of. Yeah, but to me, the that, big bo- pro- that bothers me. To me, the big problem with GPS is that it makes people lazy. It's so it, easy. It's to like just playing a do video it. game. Yeah, and, yeah. It's so easy to take it, take it, you know, read it off the machine and, and look at the chart, see it on the on the mm-hmm. virtual chart, and you know you're all set. Yeah, and that's know. dangerous business because you lose the ability to navigate. You lose the ability to to make your own decisions properly to gather your own information. Yeah. One of the um, I, I had to hire, uh, it was season before last, I had to hire some, I got stuck down in North Carolina, I had to hire a couple of uh, local guys down there to help me get back up here, okay? Yeah. And this English fellow I hired out of uh, Charleston, South Carolina, he was the most optimistic captain I have ever met in my life, okay? Everything was going to be fine. And basically, one of the uh, key ways to operate on the water is to be pessimistic all the time. You've got to be. You've got to be. But that machine is so reassuring. Oh yeah. In some ways, it it uh, you know a little bit of false security there, no doubt well, about it. The At the same problem. time, it's ultimate security and and the biggest miracle of you know knowing right where you are is so wonderful. Yeah, um, oh, I forgot to mention too for anybody who would like to contact us, not by phone but by email, uh, we do have a uh, a website that you can go right into Boat Talk. It is simply boattalk at gmail dot com. That's Boat talk, one word, two T's, at gmail.com. And I'd like to, uh, I don't know if it's an excuse or a confession or what, but when we first uh, took up this program here years ago, we did it, uh, filled in a couple of times in the summer, and they asked us to do it year-round. I thought, horrifying, what will we talk about in February? But we never run out of things to talk about, even when we have not much to talk about. We can, uh, that's one of the charms about uh, talking about stuff you love and know, and and uh, can talk about boats without... Uh, Again, uh, making much sense, and I have to say, you guys do a great job on boat talk. It's a program that I've listened to for years, uh, partly because of my interest in boats, but partly because you just have interesting things going on all the time. And I know a lot of our <sighs> listeners share that that sentiment. What a uh, beautiful thing to be able to call almost anybody on the planet and talk to them about their naval issues, you know. And and uh, it really is quite a joy and and a pretty fun thing to do. And I again. Uh, think we uh don't be all we can be is is would be my my uh, worst rap on the boat talk boys because uh it's easy enough to uh again uh uh you know like I say uh could work harder at it and and uh work harder at bothering more people to be on the radio so well, you even take interlopers like me who just walk in the door and uh, start talking <laughs> <laughs> 
Didn't figure it out exactly right. this morning, but pretty merciful. Appreciate yeah. it, Charlie. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking yeah. about what's going on, um, I have a couple of uh, local things that are happening here that are of vote interest. One of them is happening on the 20th, which I believe is uh, this weekend. Uh, there's a lecture at the Woodlawn in Ellsworth. Um, it's called Ship Building and Working Waterfront, a history lecture at the Woodlawn. Ellsworth historian Darlene Springer will talk about life on the Union River for 1763 to 1963. There were ship building, lumber yards, schooners in the harbor, and it's all interesting and free program you need to reserve your seat at woodlawnmuseum.com and we have a phone call too so let's go yeah, right woodlawn to that. museum highly recommended they uh, do a lot of interesting stuff there on the yeah. surrey road just outside ellsworth so good morning and welcome to boat talk hi uh, yeah I, I love the yarn and it's it's really wonderful but i also i i heard a couple like sort of like things but no phone calls so uh I got I, I got an interesting speculation maybe because uh, I think it's interesting, but uh, about the, uh, the the general uh, drift I'm catching on this <laughs> show and in in the nautical world actually uh, away from technology. Uh, I know it's, it's there's a lot of places where it's really useful, but we've just been listening to how. Uh, problematical it can be to rely too much on it, and uh, I, I just was coupling that together in my in my little brain with what I heard a while ago about the uh, the uh, fishermen's collective down there in Port Clyde, where they're they're uh, they're hook fishing, they're they're uh, they're they're J hook uh, long lining for for uh, for bottom fish and catching them whole and nice and making maybe a profit at it. Uh, and, you know, you put that together with the sustainability problems of large-scale mechanized fishing. And uh, I'm sort of rambling, but, you know, I, I, I'm always looking for, uh, for somebody, some, some set of uh, information that's going to buttress up my general tendency toward the Luddite perspective. Uh, where I'm, I'm basically thinking that we were doing a lot better back when we didn't do so much by machine, and that if we could only make that into a philosophical principle and begin to take apart some of these machines in the very interest of creating work and, and saving our intelligence, uh, we might be headed in an interesting direction. So I, I, just, wanted to, I just wanted to see if I could sneak that in. Uh, how do you say it? Shoehorn that in on the, uh, on the boat show. And uh, I don't know if you guys have anything to say about it, but uh, I'll let it rest there. And uh, uh, thanks for thanks for the yarn. All right. Well, we love you, Lud. Good good luck with that. Uh, you know, in the long term. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you were referring to uh, Coastal Conversations last Tuesday. Very yes. interesting uh, conversation with the Port Clyde boys, and and a lot of it based on uh, fishing uh, and the aids to uh, uh, fishing of navigation are huge. When uh, GPS finally come in, they could remember where that rock used to be as opposed to trying to take cross bearings in the fog, yeah. which is what the boys would have to end up doing. Yeah. So, you know, I think the key to managing automation is not letting it uh, control you, but you keep, be sure you stay in control yeah, and you don't let it uh, take away your ability to, to do what you know is, is what you got to do. 
uh, automation can be a great thing, but uh, it, it'll make you lazy. Here's uh, just saw this one just uh, not too long ago at all. Four friends walk into a bar. They all sit down at a table, take out their phones, and put their heads down and don't look and talk to each other. That's right. <laughs> all perfectly entertained. Yeah. You know, good for us. Yeah. yeah. Making us stupider is the is the irony when you get right down to it. I'm glad we live to see it, but man, it's uh. Got, as we like to also point out on Boat Talk, a lot of things have unintended consequences. Especially on the water. Yeah. And how, why did we not intend that? You know, if, if uh, well, it's because they were unintended, I suppose. So, And, and again, the other thing that we um, uh, like to maintain and just been working on uh, recently, and, and again, my friend Andy uh, Horner, uh, Captain Andy just passed on, who uh, taught me basically, and, and you can't fake experience. You've got to go out there and earn it. Um, again, we like to say that a uh, captain is learned and earned position. You can't just be uh, elected or appointed captain and declare that even though you've never been on a boat, you are going to be the only one who can uh, take care of all the boat problems from now on. Best of luck with that. You know. Yeah, you can sure get into trouble out there. I'll tell you, the ocean, if you're on it for a little while, makes you realize who's really in charge. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And again, uh, things are changing. Um, uh, weather is getting uh, more aggressive, more extreme, more uh, powerful. Um, that's just a fact. And uh, you can allow for that in any way, philosophy you want, but it carries, uh, um, you know, physical implications of uh, preparedness and, and how to pick up afterwards is the key to the whole thing. As, as we learned, uh, again, the... Uh, episode we just had with uh, Captain Andy and his cancer, and, and it's all about everybody being as graceful as possible, you know? It's hard to do sometimes, so especially when you can't quite uh, figure out what's happening right around you, you know? Hard to be graceful. So, Yeah. Um, we're almost at the end of the hour, and I really wanted to uh, talk about another local thing that's happening. Uh, on the end of the month, down in Bucksport, the um, Maritime Film Festival. This is the, I believe, the second annual. It takes place at the Alamo Theater in Bucksport on September 29th through the 1st. Um, there's a whole bunch of good movies there. The grand prize winner is a film called Transatlantic. It's a story about um, a 134-foot brigantine, must be somewhat like the eagle that Charlie was on, that sailed from Woods Hole, uh, I believe all the way over to Spain, and they've been taking uh, a, a swath of the recordings of the bottom all the way o over there on this this boat. But it's a must be an interesting picture movie. There's another one called Boatmaker, which is uh, one of Mike's favorite subjects of a guy fulfilling his dreams after spent 25 years building a sailboat in California and finally takes off and goes sailing around the world in his dream. And there are several other short ones that are other films there too that I won't mention all of them but one of them that appeared pretty interesting to me is called Maiden Trip, the story of the 14 year old Laura Decker. You may have heard her about her a few years ago 14 years off, old who set off to go on a two year voyage to become the youngest person to sail around the world. So there's a lot of uh, people who thought that she was just too young to do that and got into trouble with the Dutch authorities and uh, she actually did 
end up sailing off. So uh, it's an interesting story of all the uh, all the places she went and the uh, the uh, a lot of different politics. a lot of different dreams out there. And yeah. we're just saying too, you would assume that everybody on the boat is on the same trip, but uh, that's not true even on the same boat. Let alone everybody's got a bunch of different dreams, and. Uh, we like to allow for that around the boat talk. Uh, we excuse a lot of stuff by framing it as dreams. <laughs> yep. We have a dream to keep uh, boat talk going on for uh, several more years, too, in spite of the fact that we uh, only had one phone call today, which surprises me. Usually, uh, oh, again, we, traffic. we uh, didn't do our business exactly, uh, you know, way, way, uh, we could have, should have, uh, possibly today. And, and again, I'm not sure we resolved the essential debate. Is the earth round or is the earth flat? You know, uh, fair and balance, you decide. Are hurricanes um, going to get bigger or are we in trouble? Yeah. And, uh, again, beware of people who um, counter-argue you with mocking uh, affected voices and lack of, of uh, detail, you know. Um, you can throw a lot of crap at uh, uh, most problems, and doubt is more powerful than truth in so many ways. Here's a, here's a measure for uh, pro- probably measuring doubt I'm going to throw out there. Hurricane season, I believe, ends November 1st, traditionally. Uh, what do you want to bet that hurricane season goes beyond November 1st this year? Seems possible to me. I'm uh, got a couple of southern possibilities, and, and it concerns me, honestly. So, you know, um, yeah, it does. And again, the um, uh, debate is uh, is ongoing, but uh, let's try and understand the nature of the debate and whether it is, in fact, a real debate, you know, and, and uh, again, how, okay. to, how to act gracefully around all that information. Wow, there's 52 inches of rain falling on you <laughs> and 185-mile-an-hour wind. Right. Yeah, well, best thank, of luck. Thanks to Charlie Pugh for dropping in and oh, telling thanks, us. Thanks for story. having me. Let me just walk in the door. Oh, it's fun. It's always fun. You going to let us come in some Tuesday morning and pick some records while, you know? I sure will. You I'll come bet you, on I'll in. I bet you would, too. I like, what you, I like what you pick. See you All tomorrow right. morning on the Barefoot Blues Hour, Charlie. There you go. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, boat talk about out, ain't we? Yeah, we yeah. are. Thanks to Amy Brown. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Gamble & Hunter Sailmakers, making sales for classic boats, cruising boats, and the main wind jammers for more than 30 years at 16 Lime Rock Street in Camden. GambleAndHunter.com.